0: Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borelessa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology, and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals, and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, But I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. That often the people who are most successful have more failures than most
1: people and more successes. And so I consider that even as the professor, I'm constantly learning from my students. Your company is going to have a culture, whether you define it or not. So it's crucial that you define it in the way that you want, that you get ahead of it. One of the most underrated leadership traits is being able to listen effectively. We continually test and refine our hypotheses until we get to what really resonates with us. You'll fail along the way, you'll get setbacks, you'll get rejections, but the question is, can you keep going?
0: Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 42 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Alex Budak. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we begin, I wanted to thank all the followers of the podcast and YouTube channel. The podcast recently passed 5,000 downloads and it reached the top 50 of Apple podcasts in the UK career charts. The YouTube channel passed 9,000 views and now has over 170 short clips on topics such as job search, communication and influence, networking, mindset and resilience. Please do subscribe, like, and share if you enjoy the content, and do reach out if you have anything to share on the contact details in the show notes. Now back to the show. Alex is a social entrepreneur and a professional faculty member at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, where he created and teaches the transformative course, Becoming a Changemaker. He previously co-founded Start Some Good and held leadership positions at Reach for Change and Change.org. He teaches, speaks, consults, and advises organisations around the world with the mission of helping people from all walks of life become changemakers. He's a graduate of Georgetown University and UCLA and received UCLA's Recent Graduate of the Year Award. He loves spending time with his two favourite changemakers, his wife, Rebecca, and their baby sons. Welcome, Alex.
1: Harsha, thanks so much for having me. And congratulations on the global impact of your podcast and show.
0: Well, um, it, it's one of those things, Alex, I don't know how you started off on your journey, but for me, this was literally starting from one episode. And I think the key thing with all these things is you start, by doing something small. And then you know, if you get a good impact, which, which we did, I thought, okay, I'll do a few more. And then there's a sort of, um, there's just this domino effect. Hopefully you've achieved something and then you you move on. But I think you know, if, if you think about the process and, and about creating good work, I think that's a key thing. Um, and I love that story in your book when you were talking about, there was a guy who turned up for one of your meetings in a three piece suit and he wanted to be on this list and obviously you obviously, like, he's a young guy and he's ambitious
1: you know i'm in california i'm a pretty laid back guy more of a t-shirt even as we speak today so i think i can count on one hand the number of times i've taken a meeting with someone wearing a three piece suit so it was especially noticeable that it was a you know 22 year old guy and especially so that it was an unseasonably warm day in san francisco for a walking meeting <laughs> we're about to walk up the hills of san francisco so he reached out to me because he wanted some advice on change making. And that's my favorite thing to do to mentor and advise change makers. Um, but this meeting got off to a strange start. At the beginning, I was asking him, Well, you know, what do you want to do? What's your change maker impact? And he said, Oh, I have no idea what I want to do, but I really want to be on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. OK, what might you do to get on the list? He had no idea. He was so focused on the ends. He was so focused on that recognition that he completely lost track of what it takes to actually get on that list in the first place. He had, I think, confused the ends from the means. And so I told him is that like ultimately, even if you do great work, you still can't control whether or not you get on that list. That's up to some people in a conference room somewhere in New York City. But what you can control is doing impactful work to serve others in a meaningful way, And if you change your lens to be focused on that rather than external rewards, well, I can't promise you that you'll be on the Forbes 30 under 30. But even if you don't, along the way, you're going to make an impact on others' lives and make a substantive difference. And really, that's much more meaningful than what any sort of external validation of a list might provide you at some point
0: yeah and i and I just love that story, the whole idea of thinking about the process, making good work um and say with the work you're doing or or say with the podcast, ultimately, look we can't control whether people like it or not i mean and all, all you can control is producing good work, and then at some point uh you'll get hopefully the recognition or validation or whatever it is. so yeah, I just just love that point now i'm um, I'm a big fan of the arts, Alex, so is there a performer, song, book, or film which you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, I mean, there's
1: so many. I think there's real beauty in connecting with, with the arts. But I don't know. One that's just top of mind, because my toddler son loves it, is we spend a lot of time listening to the Hamilton soundtrack. And I love that because it also has so many kind of changemaker themes in it from you know Alexander Hamilton's approach to change, but also the way that Lynn manuel Miranda completely changed the entire theater world from who is on stage to the type of performance. Um, I don't know. There's just so many nice changemaker layers to it um and yeah and my toddler son loves it on top of that so i think that's a, a good recommendation
0: cool no very good now ov- obviously we we had not come across each other until our mutual friend christian bush and obviously shout out to him for putting us in touch um but i think it shows the importance of having um you know building strong relationships i mean what what do you think about the whole idea of connectivity and networking and new relationships
1: Oh, for sure. And I mean, first of all, so Christian is, of course, one of the world's leading experts on serendipity and the serendipity mindset. And I think the fact that we got brought together is a wonderful example of what he teaches this idea of sort of being open to magic happening and then great sparks can happen as a result. But yeah, when it comes to relationships, one of the fundamental beliefs of my own work as a change maker is that change making is a team sport. That I think, especially here in the Silicon Valley, We tend to do something called heropreneurship, where we put the lone entrepreneur up on a pedestal. We say, oh, look at what Jobs or Musk did. And of course, there's a role for sort of the visionary. But really, substantive, impactful change takes all of us, takes all of us working together. And when I think about all the changes that I've been part of, it's always come through and with others. You know, When I think about, for instance, uh, launching Start Some Good, the social venture that I started, Um, The initial people that were with me and that founding team, it was a friend that I had met during an internship and two of my friends from UCLA camping out for UCLA basketball games. And so that became the core team. I couldn't have expected when I first met them that they would become my teammates, but serendipity and relationships and building meaningful relationships and those things can pay off over time.
0: And, and actually i love that uh, point about ucla basketball because i mentioned before we met that you know I, i've been doing deep research on you alex and checking out your youtube channel and especially your cheers at the ucla bruins games I, i'm a huge basketball fan so I, I i love the fact that you had jordan farmer um at ucla when you were there and i'm a lakers fan and sorry for all my Boston uh, supporters out there, but just love the Lakers. But yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about your your time at UCLA and your chair cheering the Bruins on? Were you in the Den or something? I I saw.
1: Yeah, that's right. So uh, friends and I co-founded the Den, which is the student group for UCLA basketball and and football and other sports. Um, And. Basically, I spent most of my winter quarter uh, camped out for UCLA basketball (laughs) games. The hardcore fans would all sleep out in the cold. And of course, it's Los Angeles, so it's not that cold. But still, it's cold. Uh, And we would spend our winter quarter camping out to try to get the best seats um, if you look at my transcript, you'll see that there's a dip in my grades during winter quarter, which uh, I wonder why, um, but all because we wanted to be there. UCLA basketball is, of course, magical and there's a community feeling around it. And we wanted to be there to cheer on the team. And so, yeah, that was a big part of my UCLA experience and was rewarded with some really good teams while I was there as well.
0: Yeah, because I think at that time, they came, went to three final fours. And I think you had Kevin Love, Russell Westbrook, Farmer, some pretty decent players there.
1: A lot of NBA talent was on this. Yeah, and I got to go actually see two of the final fours in person, which was a a special joy as a basketball fan.
0: Oh, cool. No, fantastic. But after graduation, Alex, uh, obviously you spent a lot of time in, say, in India, Sweden, and graduate school. So was there any sort of particular strategy for your career? Well, I always knew that I wanted to be part of a
1: a change effort. Uh, As I was looking back, actually, in my high school yearbook, every student gets to put one quote underneath their photo, and so my quote was, be the change you wish to see in the world, in Gandhi. And of course, at age 18, I couldn't have known what I'd possibly be doing. But there's something about that that always resonated with me. And so I've always thought about how could I lead change? But my perspective on how to lead change has drastically changed throughout the years. So I went to uh, study public policy in graduate school, uh, very passionate about public education and thought, okay, that's how I'll make change and, you know, make change. Most of my friends in policy school uh, have gone on to careers in the World Bank, the IMF, kind of the big institutions. And there's a role for that for sure. But I think when I got out to graduate school, I realized that actually was a little too entrepreneurial for the traditional public policy route. And so as well in India, uh, where I was studying and uh, living, that i did some volunteer work with a local social enterprise a local grassroots group working with girls from the community using sport as a tool to teach them healthy habits and leadership and it was there that my perspective on change fundamentally shifted i stopped thinking about change coming from the big institutions and realizing that there's actually change makers all around the world people like this grassroots organization that want to go do good but just too many barriers getting in the way. And I remember after I would leave our practices, I would walk back home over the the dusty streets and chaotic noise. And I would just sort of reflect on what I had experienced. And my obsession, my interest, my passion became really clear that I was going to focus on how could I help more people become change makers, tear down more of the barriers that get in the way and support anyone in starting good.
0: So did, did you become a cricket fan while you were out in India, Alex? Did you learn any of the arcane rules of the game?
1: I tried my very, very best. And you would think like as a baseball fan that I'd have good patience for this work, but even Crick was a bit too long for me. So I never quite, never quite got it.
0: <laughs> That's the irony of ironies. <laughs> very good. So now obviously you're at Berkeley, you've done yeah, incredibly well, um, teaching this wonderful course on, you know, change making. And obviously you've got the book out in the world. Love reading it. Um, and would you like to give a brief summary um, about the book um, for our listeners? Oh,
1: gladly. So the tagline is an actionable, inclusive guide to leading positive change at any level. And so, you know, I love leadership books. You can see a bunch of books behind me, but I think so often leadership books are told from the perspective of the executive director or the CEO, the singular leader. And so instead I wanted to shift that. So this story is about how each and every one of us, no matter our role, no matter our authority, how each of us can lead positive change and how we can do that across sectors and roles, titles um, and I break the book down into three parts. So we start with a change maker mindset. What are the traits, the characteristics, the ways of seeing the world that great change makers have in common? And that's all rooted in some original research I've done on leading change. Then the second portion is changemaker leadership. How do you engage others in the change? That's one of our early themes in this conversation. But how do you inspire others to be part of the change with you? How do you paint a picture of the future and use vision? And the third part is changemaker action. It's of course not change thinking, it's change making. And so how do you take those really, really challenging but crucial first steps of action? How do you start turning an idea into something really tangible? And so the book traces the same trajectory as my class. And um, yeah, it's a joy to put this book out into the world to hopefully help change makers from all walks of life step into their potential.
0: So, so basically the, for the readers out there, they're getting a UC Berkeley course without having you near know, the cost. And without having to take a final exam. That's, that's
1: <laughs> right. Complete, no, no homework in the book. That's exactly, right. Exactly.
0: It's a complete yeah. bargain. <laughs> <laughs> Sign up guys. But, but I, but I love this thing about mindset. And, and actually, the start of my sort of personal development journey came very much from, you know, Carol Dweck and growth mindset. And I also love this way about you, you talk about in the book about dealing with failure. Because I do think life is very much about dealing with failure. Um, And it could be that, sort of, you know, some people, they've never had to deal with failure. They've done well at school, they've got the job they want. And then they hit that first. Roadblock, and it's really difficult. Um, and I play a lot of sport when I was young, play a lot of cricket, actually. Um, and it's very similar to baseball in the fact that, as a batter, and I was a batter, that you fail much more than you succeed. So I completely relate to that idea that you've almost got to change, uh, you know, bend reality and say, okay, what's happened has happened. There's nothing I can do about it. It's it's gone, and move on. But it's actually very difficult to to achieve. And I love this thing in your book where you actually force people to fail um, and go out and ask for ridiculous things. Because then I think you realize actually failure is not such a big deal. Um, maybe would you like to touch on that, Alex?
1: Yeah, sure. And I think what you're raising is so important. It's called the failure paradox, which is that when we look at people who we deem successful, we tend to think, wow, they've succeeded a lot. And you know, that, that may be true. But what the data show is that they've also failed a lot. That often the people who are most successful have more failures than most people and more successes than most people. It's simply about, in American baseball terms, the number of at-bats you can have. You know, How many times can you give it a shot and then success can come if you can learn to fail forward, to learn from your failures. So exactly right. So I'm at UC Berkeley, uh, a bunch of high achievers, uh, probably used to doing things the quote right way, not used to having too many setbacks. And then I shock them. So we spend a a lecture talking about failure, failing forward. We do some case studies. We talk about some frameworks and empirical data and research. And they go, okay, go fail. And students kind of look at me like, what's going on? Is he for real? I go, yeah, I'm for real. Here's the assignment. You have 10 minutes. You have to go leave the classroom. And you can't come back until you've gotten someone to reject you. You have to ask for something and get a no. And at this point, the students start responding. They start sweating. They start turning red. Like, they're so nervous. And I go, look, look, I'll be at the front of the room. If you need some coaching, need some advice, I'll support you. But I'm serious. 10 minutes, go fail. And so they nervously shuffle their feet out of the classroom. And then when they come back, the energy is just off the charts insane. It was so loud that I once had another professor come by, knock on the door and ask us to keep it down because students are so lit up from this experience. So what do we find? Two things. One, about one third of students... They go out, they ask for something. They're sure they'll get rejected. And they get a yes. They actually get a yes. I think about one woman who went to the cafe downstairs and went up to the barista and said, hi, could I have a free orange juice? And she sort started, started walking away expecting a no. And he said, yeah, okay. Said, oh, uh, okay, can I have two? She said, yeah, okay. Uh, can I have three? And at that point he cut her off. It's only two orange juices. But she came back to the class with two orange juices. Um, there's about yeah, one third of students who actually get what they want. And what a powerful reframe because so often we set ourselves up to fail because we don't even ask in the first place. We're so sure that we'll get a no when maybe we'll actually get a yes.
0: And And, then for the other
1: two, oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, and I think there's some just amazing points you made there and this whole idea of, you know, just if you don't ask, you, you have no idea whether you'll get. And say with this podcast, you have to ask a lot of people before you get good guess and you have to deal with rejection and you can't be fixed thin-skinned about it you just and look people are doing this out of you know they're out of the goodness of their heart they're giving up their time so you, you can't expect um everybody to say yes because people are busy and you never know what their situation is at that point in time but also i think one other interesting thing is that it's about looking at your life and seeing where there is failure because i mean everybody does have failure in their lives and then thinking okay how can i use those experiences um say from sport or from you know getting rejected from university and i think you talked about being rejected from uc berkeley as well twice um and and you still came came back to them um so <laughs> not obviously you didn't hold a grudge against them
1: no, exactly right. So if we talk about like your experience with asking guests to be on the podcast, you know, a framework I teach in the book is to try to understand, well, what's the risk here? And so I think in your case, if you reach out to someone, ask them to be on, on the pod, the worst that could possibly happen is that you compliment them And they're probably happy to hear that they have a fan that someone admires their work and they go about their day. Like that's the worst that happens. And then the best is you build a relationship, you build a connection, they come on the show, amazing things happen. Like it's totally a risk worth taking as long as you can be okay with knowing that if someone says no, that it's not because they hate your podcast or they think you're not doing good work, but just who knows, maybe they just had a kid and they're just busy. Who, Who knows what's going on in someone else's life. And in that case, it's a risk worth taking.
0: And and I think it's all about just taking the personal out of it. Because I think if you put this thing on this pedestal and say, you know, this is a, it's a very much a, a binary thing, it's like success or failure. And if they reject me, I'm a failure. Um, just don't take it personally. Just okay, ask, look at the result. If it comes, that's great. But if not, no big deal. And and just move on. But I think people sometimes invest too much of themselves in that whole success or failure thing, isn't it, Alex? So yeah, no. Great, great point.
1: Yeah, exactly right. If we go back to the kind of the career mindset, I mean, it's so easy when we get a career rejection to think that, oh, we did something wrong. Uh, But I'll actually uh, remind you that I got rejected from Berkeley three times. So twice for school (laughs) and then once for an employment opportunity for a job (laughs) where it turned out that I was in second place. And so they sent me an email saying, hey, you know, Um, You know, nice to meet you. But unfortunately you're in second. We gave it to someone else and I said, okay, you know, great. Let's keep in touch. And of course you're bummed because you want the job. (laughs) But then two days later, again, email saying, oh, actually the first person we had offered it to can't take the job. So the job's yours. And that reminded me that failure just isn't personal. Like who knows why that other person was ranked number one. And I, I was ranked number two, like at some point it's arbitrary or there's just a toss up and it doesn't mean that I couldn't do good work once I got the opportunity. It just is the randomness and the chance of not taking things personally. And that was uh, that continues to be a good reminder for me that failure and rejection isn't personal in most cases.
0: Maybe they were checking out your chance on your YouTube channel, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> but moving back to the book, one story I really love was this Aurora Lopez story. Um, would you like to share that with our listeners?
1: Oh, sure, Rora is um, one of my standout students. I mean, I get to teach so many incredible students at Berkeley, but she really is a, a terrific person. So um, she grew up um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and she tried to attend one school, but because of the way that zoning and districting works, she got forced to attend her local school, which was a really underfunded school. And while she was there, she started thinking, well, okay, maybe there's not really a path forward for me in education. But she had one amazing teacher who took her under his wings, who made a point of saying, hey, I went to Stanford University, not to show off, but to remind people like Aurora that people of color, people from uh, traditionally marginalized backgrounds can succeed. They can go to these higher institutions um, of learning. And so she was thinking, well, maybe I won't apply to college. But he said, no, you are going in this room. You're not leaving until you apply to at least one school. And so she applied to San Jose State. She got in. Um, and then after a while, she decided to transfer to UC Berkeley. Now, I then had her in her very first semester at UC Berkeley, and her empathy always stood out to me. Um, fascinating research has been done by Jamil Zaki, who shows that empathy is contagious. When we see others being empathetic, it makes us want to be empathetic as well, similar with kindness. And so she became a standout student of mine, and she also became a teaching assistant for me. And as she would grade students' papers, I was just blown away by the level of care and attention she put into things. She would, of course, grade things well. But then she'd also leave these personal notes. She'd say something like, hey, you know, this paper is great. I'm a first generation college student too. I know how tough it can be. Here's my personal email address. Here's my social media handles. Get in touch. Let me know if I can help you. And her personal care was not ever something that I asked her to do. It's just something so ingrained in her. And I have to think it has to be inspired by the teacher that she had growing up in high school, that she saw this empathy. She saw this person who looked out for her. And now she wants to pay it forward to many other students. And absolutely one of the highlights of my teaching career was when I saw a parent post on Instagram the amazing comment that Aura Aurora had left for one for their uh, for their daughter. Like amazing the way that it impacted one person looking out for someone else can have. And Aurora truly shows that empathy is contagious.
0: And I just love that point you make, Alex, about you know the whole idea of paying it forward because sometimes people think um, the world is very selfish, but actually there there's a lot of goodwill out there.
1: I think that's exactly right. I mean, if we look at leaders today, we do see a lot of people who are sort of short-term thinking that just try to take advantage. And, you know, I agree, maybe for the short term, you can get away with that. But in today's world where reputations follow us, where there's what we call like in the game theory world, repeated games, repeated transactions, where you see people over and over again. The smart play is to pay it forward, to be kind, to be generous. And I really, really do believe that over the long term, those that give more than they take in the research of Adam Grant will be the ones that thrive and succeed.
0: And and I think this point I think about, look, okay, if if, if you give something to somebody and then they don't reciprocate, like, okay, you've learned that lesson, you know, for the future that those people are not the ones you want to be building with. So I, I think, you know, it's much better to have that mindset giving. If somebody is not so nice to you, you note that down and then you move on. But I think for those people who don't reciprocate, it is a very short-term move because I think the world is so small. I mean, just look at us. I'm in London, you're in um, in Berkeley, uh, and we're connecting. And you never know how people get to know each other. And sometimes it's that small thing. I'm connected to somebody on LinkedIn. You might say like, what's this person like? Your brand or your values are so important because eventually it will come around.
1: Absolutely. And it's just not worth a short-term gamble to be like, oh, maybe we can take advantage of this person. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's just not worth it when you realize that one, of course, it's not the ethical or the right thing to do. But beyond that, even just with the lens you talk about of the repeated game, seeing someone again, reputation preceding you, it's worth doing the right thing.
0: Cool. Um, and moving on to, uh, there's another great story, which I'd never actually come across. Um, and this is in the questioning status quo chapter. And I just love that whole idea of, you know, you see you know, the, the world as it is, but actually what you're trying to do is reimagine it, reframe it. And I love this whole idea about technology, because before I was not interested in technology at all. Um, I was one of these one of the few Asian people who has no interest in it. But then I thought, look, it's the twenty first century. I've really got to got to get into it. And I still don't understand how I'm doing podcasts and YouTube. <laughs> There's obviously some geek within me who's come out. But um, yeah, and I think it's just about trying to like look at the world in a different way. And I love this Leila Olgren story about mobile phones. Yeah, Lila
1: Ogren is a fantastic changemaker. What I love about her is that her impact is being felt by us today, even though you probably don't know her name. So she was working at the Swedish Telecommunications Agency back in the 1970s. And she was on the team that was trying to create the first ever mobile phone. At this point, they were trying to do a phone in a car, so like an auto uh, phone. And they kept running into the same issue. So they were trying to recreate the exact same experience that you had on a landline in your home or office in the car. So you you pick up the phone, you dial the 7, 10, 11 numbers, um, and then it it dials off. Um, But they kept running to issues when they did it in the car, because they would be sending the numbers off to the towers, and you would hit shadows or trees or tunnels, and the connection would keep getting dropped. And it got to the point where they started thinking, maybe this mobile telephony thing just isn't possible, like maybe it just can't work. But fortunately for us, Lila Ogren saw things a little bit differently. By the way, the only woman on an otherwise all-male team saw things a little bit differently. And she said, why are we trying to recreate the exact same experience of a phone in a house in a car? What about if we thought about things differently? And at the same time, the initial circuits were just becoming powerful enough to save just a little bit of data and so what you said is, okay, instead of trying to dial the numbers as we go, which is when you run into tunnels and dropped calls, instead, let's just store up the numbers. So I dial the eight numbers, the 10 numbers, they store it on a chip, and then once I've got the full number, boom, then we set it off to the radio tower. And that might just took a split second, and the call could actually be completed. Now, it's just a tiny little reframe in terms of strategy, but a huge reframe in terms of how we think about the role of mobile telephony. She was willing to see things differently and dial up her curiosity and not just say, well, just because this is the one way we've always thought about phones. No, maybe there's a different way, a better way for mobile phones. And that's made all the difference.
0: And, and I just love that whole idea of the reframe, because I think in life, if you look at um, you know, what you've done in the past and you know, there's no point doing, you're repeating actions which haven't got you anywhere and, and simply by saying, look, that's what I've done in the past. Um, I'm going to carry on. I think it really uh, requires a, a sense of boldness to say, "Okay, forget it. Um, let's think how I can do this differently. How can I, you know, connect with people differently? How can I uh, set, you know, pass on my story differently?" And I think that's where the really great ideas happen.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And that's one of the chapters of the book it is called "Student Always." And you know, I love this quote from teaching, which is that when one person teaches, two people learn. And so I consider that even as the professor, I'm constantly learning from my students. I think a very dangerous point is where we think we've got everything all figured out, because even if we actually think we do, and that the world is changing so quickly all around us that we've got to grow. We've got to adjust. We've got to change. And just like you, in terms of how you adapted new technologies and did a podcast and things like that, um, it's no longer a nice to have. It's a necessity. And so can we have that mindset where instead of thinking like, okay, I get to some pinnacle where I know everything I need to know, no, we're constantly growing, constantly evolving, constantly in a state of adaptation because that's the only path forward really.
0: And and I think, I I don't know if you've ever come across this, these terms like a a kind and wicked environment. And, And I think a kind is one where things don't really change very much and wicked is this constant volatility. And I think in the world now, there is this constant volatility that you can't simply rely on the playbook from 2000, 2010, even 2020. It's constantly changing, isn't it? So you have to have that adaptability.
1: Yeah, there's a cartoon I like to use in one of my classes where it shows a bunch of people sitting inside of a conference room and the CEO has their foot on the table and they're like, oh, digital strategy, that can wait a couple of years. And then right outside you see the COVID-19 as this wrecking ball about to hit the office. And that's how digital transformation is often thought about. It's like, oh, we can put it off a little bit. But I think COVID, climate, among other things, have shown us that we no longer have that luxury. We've got to be adapting. We've got to be changing. We can't keep the same playbooks we've had before. And so the question, or I would say the opportunity, is can we learn to get so comfortable with change that we don't just survive it, but instead we can navigate, shape, and steer it to lead positive change for ourselves, our teams, our communities?
0: I just absolutely love that. And I think this a whole idea of the world is changing. is changing ever more quickly. We really have to think, how can we be surfing the wave rather than fighting against it? And I think, you know, there are definitely things that you can be doing. I mean, say with um, communication or trying to get your message across. Um, you know, having a a podcast, creating a YouTube video, uh, even if you're not a, uh, I'm I'm not a sort of an extrovert, but I've learned to, you know, uh, put put myself out there. And I think by doing podcasts and YouTube videos, people can see who you are, they have a much better idea. Or if you like writing blogs or writing a book or whatever it is, uh, if you just push yourself a little bit, get outside your comfort zone, then I think that's where some real magic happens.
1: Yeah, and let me bring that back to the story of the three piece suit wear. So I would argue, yeah, do things, but also find ways to serve others that if you want to help people make sense of their careers, go do it. If you want to help people figure out how to be better at their personal finance, go do it. But I think the, be- the more you can be rooted in trying to serve others, make a positive impact on others, um, and put yourself out there. That's where some really magical things can happen.
0: Oh no no fantastic and and this other thing you were talking about in your book uh, confidence with attitude for for leaders and I think you know it, it it's almost like a contradictory thing that you have to have confidence but you also have to have a bit of humility in a way yeah I think as change makers
1: we need to be able to hold on to multiple polarities at the same time so think about on one hand as change makers we've got to solve these urgent challenges we've got to have this bias towards action. But at the same time, we also have to recognize that change often takes time. We can't just burn ourselves out after two weeks. So we have to be both urgent and patient. I think the same here with being both confident and humble. Now, the mistake that I see a lot of people make is where they go, okay, I'm just going to be a little bit confident and a little bit humble. So a little bit confident means, you know, you kind of put yourself out there, but not really. You say you're going to watch a podcast, but you don't actually do it. And a little bit humble, which is where you kind of admit your mistakes. You're kind of vulnerable, but not really. Instead, I think the mistake is to be a little bit of each. Rather, we want to be both and. So the best change makers are confident and they're humble. They're fully confident, right? You have to have confidence to stand up and say, I've got a vision for change. I've got an idea. I'm going to do this thing. Come along with me. But also you've got to be fully humble, humble enough to admit your own mistakes, to make other people want to be part of the process with you, to have intellectual humility, to know that you don't know everything. And it's really powerful when you're not just a little confident and a little humble, but you're both, you're confident and you're humble. That's where some magic happens as a change maker, holding both at the same time.
0: No, I just love that. And, and there was, I think one thing you shared in your book where I think you were running a startup and then you, you like to sort of send emails late at night. And then you had these uh, interns replying late at night. And that was completely not your intention, but they felt that because you were the boss, they had to reply. Um, and I think it's that's a really interesting insight that you had to pick that up, but it was only by seeing other people's reactions. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Alex?
1: Yeah, that was like a gut punch to me in my early days. Because again, I had never really led a team before. I ran right out of grad school. I co-founded Start Some Good. And so I was just figuring out my own voice as a leader. And so early days, you know, the scrappy entrepreneur, I'd send emails at midnight, 1am, 2am. I was working these crazy hours. And I recognized that my interns were also sending me emails at 1am. And I was going, why are you doing this? I never told you to send me an email at 1 a.m. And I felt terrible. But then I realized, well, I never told them not to. And so they were just learning based on my behavior. They're observing what the boss did, what the co-founder did. And like, oh, I guess that's what's expected. And that's where I realized that your organization, your company is going to have a culture, whether you define it or not. So it's crucial that you define it in the way that you want, that you get ahead of it. And so at that point, I made a point of saying, look, I never, ever expect you to send me an email after 5 p.m. Like you go on about your day. Like I will maybe send you an email at a weird time of day, but that's me. Please don't even worry about that. You know, I'll be back when you're at the office, when you're ready to go again, like, don't feel like you have to do it. And so that was a moment where I felt so badly for what I did to these people, but also changed my whole trajectory on the role of culture as a catalyst for change and making sure that I'm super conscious about the values and the way I want my teams to run.
0: Yeah. And I I think that whole point about picking up what you were doing and then recognizing, okay, maybe I have not done things in the optimal way. I think that requires a lot of leadership in a way, doesn't it? And self-awareness, reflection that you want to be a a better boss, doesn't it, Alex?
1: Absolutely. And, And some empathy too, right? To say like, hey... You know, I put myself in your shoes and I don't want you sending an email at 1 a.m. And so let me make sure that I create the framework, the process, the scaffolding so that you know what's expected of you, that you can thrive. And you don't feel like you have to sort of navigate these uncertain waters of what does the leader actually want here? No, make it really clear. And we grounded based in the culture of values.
0: Actually, moving on now to the the, the next section in your book, the the leadership topic, because obviously we've been t- touching on that. Um, would you like to maybe talk a little about this whole idea of micro leadership? Because I think for a lot of people, they think leadership has to be, I lead a, a, a you know a ten man ten person team or a hundred person team, but actually you can do it in very small ways. And for for people who are not used to leading, just stepping up and doing a small project or something is is quite important. I mean, what what do you think, Alex?
1: Yeah, crucially important. So, no, I I teach at a business school, but I think the way that we often teach leadership at business schools is broken, where we focus so much on the singular leader and the single heroic moment. So Lech Wales is scaling the wall or Steve Jobs pulling the iPhone out of his pocket. And we say, that's what leadership is. And of course, you know, there's a role for that type of heroic leadership. But also when we look at those moments and we say, well, I'm not naturally as extroverted or as charismatic as them, does that mean that I can't be a leader too? And I think that's no, absolutely not the case. I believe that while leaders might be scarce, leadership is abundant. And so I think we need to shift our thinking about what it means to be a leader and what it means to practice leadership. And so I encourage readers to start thinking about leadership in terms of its smallest meaningful unit, which is the leadership moment. There's dozens of these moments that appear before us per day. You know, little moments we can step up and serve others. Maybe it's during a team meeting where one of your colleagues has been quiet and you say, hey, you know, haven't heard from you. you, Do you want to share your perspective? Or maybe it's having the courage to say no when everyone else is saying yes. Or maybe it's staying late to help a colleague clean up after their first work event. All these tiny little moments that appear before us. And so my challenge to you or the opportunity for you is to practice micro-leadership, to seize these leadership moments, these tiny little moments to step up and serve others. Because ultimately leadership isn't about one single heroic act. It's about the sum of lots and lots of small acts, and it can all be broken down into micro-leadership. And when you think about it that way, you'll never go too far by seizing one little leadership moment. It's a chance for you to step up, serve others, look out for each other, and to practice leadership, even and especially if you don't have that formal title of, quote, leader.
0: Yeah, and, and I love this whole idea of, look, just focus on these small things, because you know, if, if you uh, get that small win... Uh, and yeah, you know, we'll, or we'll just step up to the plate and it goes well. Then you can use that sort of past history to reaffirm your confidence and say, okay, it's not such a big deal to go against the grain. And, and funny enough, I was in a meeting and there were a number of other people saying, um, you know, one thing. And then I, I backed one other person up who's going the contrary way. Um, not because I wanted to sort of be a hero or anything like that, but I, that's what I thought. Um, and it, in the end, it wasn't like a big deal. At least I'm not sure it swayed the other people, but at least it could see that, show that other person he wasn't in the minority, um, which I, and made me feel good. And hopefully then that takes gives me some confidence for the next time I have a sticky situation.
1: Yeah, it all builds doing it again and again and again. I love that example.
0: And and apart from um, sort of micro leadership, are there any other thoughts uh, on leadership? Uh, because I I do think that that's something that you know a lot of people people think that they should be born leaders, but actually it's about picking up these habits. Um, and and it is an acquired skill. So some people do have an affinity, but others do need time to grow into leadership.
1: For sure, and you know when we look at leadership today, I think there's lots of bad examples out there. Um, when I first joined Berkeley, my, jo- my job was to be the executive director of a leadership center at Berkeley Haas. And in that role, I got to reach out to many of my leadership heroes and have these conversations with them and ask them, you know, how did you develop your leadership style? And what was so fascinating is that the most common answer by far, and even these are leaders whom I deeply admire for how they developed their own leadership style, is they themselves had experienced what they called bad leadership. So leadership that wasn't effective, made them feel bad. And they decided in that moment to do the opposite. So they experienced a leader who was arrogant. And as a result, they decided, oh, well, I'm never going to be that type of leader. They made a conscious decision. And so there's a lot we can learn if we have that framework. And there's so many people that experience bad leadership and think, well, I had to go through it. So I guess I'll just pass it on to someone else. Or that's what it looks like to be in the you know, corporate business world. But actually, we can disrupt that. We can say, no, just because I had to deal with a boss who was belittling doesn't mean that I should be that boss to someone else. And so my challenge is, can you make a conscious decision to think about bad leadership you've experienced and then to do the opposite and to become the leader that you wish you had had?
0: And and it's funny because I had a a guest... um... Julie Adam who was a very senior figure at Rogers and we were talking about this whole idea of um, um. she had written this book about kindness how it's this superpower she was saying that you can be kind but that doesn't mean that you can't make tough decisions and I think you know you don't want people to think okay that he or she is kind therefore she's a put- he or she is a pushover Um, they're empathetic they're nice but sometimes you do have to make tough decisions. And say somebody's struggling in the team. Like, why is that person struggling? Is it because they they're not you know they don't have the ability to do the task, or is it they're not getting the resource? And really dig deep. And it could be that it's not it's not the right fit. And then in that situation, it's kind to move them somewhere else um, rather than uh, having them struggle. So I think uh, being kind and being decent isn't a bad thing. But sometimes you do have to be tough in leadership. It goes back
1: to the polarities again, this idea of not just being a little bit kind and a little bit tough. Like, no, we want both. We want you to be like very kind and tough when you have to be. And both of those can exist at the same time. But I think it also unlocks one of the things I talk about in the book, that one of the most underrated leadership traits is being able to listen effectively. Research has shown that in leaderless groups where they're given sort of an ambiguous task, the most effective leadership trait is being a really good listener. And so that's a key to that. When you have uh, employees maybe underperforming, it's not going with preconceived notions to use some empathy, but also to honestly listen and say, you know, what's going on? Not assume that they're dumb or can't do the worst, but like try to understand what may be going on here. Listen to them and then make a decision based off of that. And I think that has to be rooted in both kindness and the willingness to be tough.
0: And, and I think with most employees, I would say 99.9%. They do, they they put the effort in, they do want to succeed. So it's not that they're slacking or just can't be bothered. So like what how can the manager really help them? Is there something that they can do? Have they really been explained the tasks? Because maybe it could be a very simple thing, but as you're saying, nobody's really listened to them.
1: Paul Batalden, who's a medical doctor, has a quote which totally took my breath away. He says, every system is perfectly designed to deliver the results that it gets. So, put another way, we have systems all around us all the time. And our job as leaders, and especially as change makers, is to question those systems. So, if you see someone who's really underperforming, it's a kind of lazy thing to just say, oh, they're not talented. They don't care. And it's a much deeper and I think much more important approach to say, well, what are the systems that are going into this that's leading to this outcome that we're getting underperformance? You know, is it that they are undertrained? Is they don't have the resources they need? Is it that they're, I don't know, an introvert and they're stuck working in an open office yeah. plan and they just can't focus and they can't concentrate, um, you know, it could be any of these things, but to try to understand what are the systems in place that are leading to this outcome that we're getting and then try to solve that system instead of just saying, oh, terrible employee, let's just fire them or let's just force them to do something different. Focus on systems. And I think that's a much harder way, but a much more sustainable way to try to solve problems.
0: And, and I think you know, if you think about, you know, the, the, the search for talent, you know, finding talent and retaining it, I think companies that well the clever companies will try much harder to make sure that they're getting the right people in, but also not once, not that they're just in, they're actually thriving, because there's no point getting, you know, making a diverse workforce and, but they're not treating them very well. So I think it's really incumbent on the company and a smart company should be putting these um, processes in place to keep everybody happy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I write a lot of the book about the importance of inclusion and belonging in terms of helping your team be at its best.
0: Fantastic. And and now moving on to the final piece, because as you're saying, it's action, isn't it? Because yeah. it's a change maker. Um And I love the, the Steve Jobs story about the iPhone because you don't have to make like massive bets. You make these small um, cha- bets and then you see, does it work? And I think in life, you, know, you don't have to sell the farm. You just have to take these small steps, but you do have to take action because I think thinking can only take you so far. Uh, it's about getting your hands dirty and, and doing something.
1: Yeah, sure. So that's based off of research and a story done by Morton Hansen and Jim Collins. Uh, and they have a framework, which is called Fire Bullets than cannonballs. And I think this is helpful for change makers that we sometimes think, okay, I'm gonna launch my new idea into the world, whether that's a podcast or a service or a coffee shop. And you feel like, okay, I've got one shot to do it. I've got to put all my eggs in one basket, just go big. But actually what they say is no, what you should do is before you fire the cannonball, which is that sort of like one big bet, no fire lots of bullets first. Fire small tests to see, are you sort of on the right track? Are you hitting that bullseye first? Then you can kind of titrate, make sure you're on the right path and then go big with confidence. And so the story about Steve Jobs and the iPhone is that, you know, when he pulled the iPhone out of his pocket, it seemed like a big bold bet, a big cannonball, but it was based off of a lot of small tests over a few years. They started off with saying, here's the iPod. Would people be willing to carry this extra device around in their pocket? And of course the answer was yes. Then the question was, well, you know, would people be willing to buy music in an online store, the iTunes store? And of course the answer was yes. And then they played around with different formats um, and sizing and, uh, design of the iPad, iPod, and to that closer and closer, and then ready for the iPhone. Now, of course, it was still a risk when Steve Jobs did it, but it was way less of a risk than we tend to think that it was. All because he first fired bullets and then went big with the cannonball.
0: Yeah, and I and I just love that idea of yeah, just even you know, in your uh, career uh, or if you're trying to start a venture just do some a little um, experiment, see if there's um, you know, interest, get the feedback and make it this sort of virtuous loop. And, and I love this thing with tech. It, it, they're always trying to put something out there, the minimum viable product, see what it's like, get the feedback, enhance the product. And I think in your life or change-making, just having that sort of that loop, the continuous feedback, and, and as you were saying, never let resting on your laurels always trying to gather information, see where the market is. Because I think if you get too comfortable, then uh, you're not giving your audience or your customers uh, what they want.
1: Yeah. And this actually connects back to the idea of a career as well. So probably my favorite career advice ever came from my friend, Jocelyn Ling Milan. She was a guest speaker in my class at Berkeley. And she says, gotta start thinking about your career as a series of hypotheses to test that instead of thinking that you could possibly know exactly what you want to do at age 22 when you haven't worked before, start thinking, about what are the hypotheses you want to test? You know, and it might be, I think I would like working in finance, or I think I'd like working in a big company, or I think I'd like working in New York City, or I think I'd like working for a small mission-driven startup. I don't know. It could be any of those things. And then instead of thinking that you know exactly what the answer is, no, you go out and you test those things. And you take that first job and you go into the finance job in New York, but you go into it with the lens of a scientist of thinking, okay, my hypotheses, I like working for a big company. I like working intense hours. And I like being in a big city. And then maybe you find, well, you like being in a big city, but you actually don't like that work. And then that informs the way that you think about your second job. You keep what works and then you come up with new hypotheses. We continually test and refine our hypotheses until we get to what really resonates with us
0: the whole idea of, you know, take action um, and analyze and see, okay, is this for me? Uh, is this something I like doing or not? And 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 also, I think, don't think about the time that you've spent as lost. And I think it's that reframe rather than thinking about the five years, but the five out of 50 years or five out of 40 years. And, and even if you don't go back to it, there's always stuff you've learned, um, which I think a lot of people don't realize skills are very transferable. And as long as you Work hard, and uh, you have a drive. You can pick stuff up relatively quickly.
1: Yeah, one of the worst jobs that I had uh, was where I was sort of like a an internal consultant, and um I didn't enjoy it. But I learned some really important skills. I got really good at Excel. Uh, I remember when I, when I got when I was trying to get the job in the first place, they had like an Excel test for me to do, and the manager came back and was like, "Hmm, Alex." This is very interesting. I've never seen someone do it quite like this. It doesn't really make sense, but I can see what you're thinking. And like, yeah, I don't, I've never (laughs) learned it. I don't actually know what I'm doing here. Said, okay, you know, we'll we'll work with you. (laughs) I didn't like the job, um, but I got really good at using Excel. And that skill has paid off so many times. Um, You know, now I'm a faculty member, so I don't have to be doing like detailed financial modeling. When I have to build a simple Excel sheet easy because I had that experience. And so while like, did I enjoy that one year or so? Not especially, but did I come with some very tangible things that make me better? Absolutely. I did. As long as you have that lens of like, what did I learn from it? And how can I play that forward?
0: Cool. Fantastic. So um, on, on action, are there any other thoughts, Alex, um, that you'd like to share uh, before we uh, we're coming up to the end of our hour?
1: Well, I just mentioned that you know, everything I write about is grounded in research. So I did something called the Changemaker Index, which is the first ever longitudinal study to try to understand how change makers develop over time. Uh, and so I write about this in the book. And if you're curious to take the index yourself, you can actually do so. You can go to changemakerbook.com slash index. And in it, it'll show you what your greatest strength as a maker is. Is your greatest strength your mindset, your leadership, or your action? Uh, and that will give you some sense of sort of where you are right now and what your greatest areas for development are going forward.
0: Cool. And, and actually, th- th- this reminded me to ask you about the one formula in your book, um, you know, where you're talking about action. And if you don't have any action, it's zero.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'm not qualified to be teaching anything close to math at UC Berkeley, where there's like Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> and here I am, the doofus, teaching one equation. Here's, here's my one equation. And I say, look, your impact as a change maker is equal to the sum of your mindset and your leadership multiplied by your action. So what does that tell us? That means you have a great mindset. You've got great leadership, but that number is big multiplied by zero, zero action. The result is zero. So you've got to take action. You've got to take those first steps. It's not enough to just have the mindset and the leadership it's multiplied. Your impact is multiplied when you take action. And so that reminds us that um, in order to have the impact you want to have, you gotta turn ideas into action.
0: Fantastic, um, Alex. Look, it's been so much fun um, having you on the show. You know, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I think our listeners have will probably get so much from this discussion. But I think one thing that uh, I, I would also add is that I think you, know, uh, although you talk about ch- change makers. This can be very much applied to your career because it's really about looking internally, looking at yourself, and thinking, okay, okay. Uh, I suppose you're looking at more from a social uh, entrepreneurship, but actually, anybody in any career can take a lot of the principles you've talked about: mindset, um, you know, leadership, taking action, and actually really supercharge your life.
1: Yeah, very much hope so, and I hope that all of your listeners and those watching will see a bit of themselves in this book. Uh, There's over 50 case studies and people from all different walks of life. So it's not confined to just social impact. It's about how can we adapt to and lead to change? And I would love to hear from you based on how you apply these principles to your own work, your own career, your own job search, Uh, because I think they are, as as you mentioned, quite applicable. And yeah, I would love to hear from you how you put these ideas into action.
0: Fantastic, and and Alex, um, one final, obviously I'll make sure all your uh, social media handles, website, everything's in the show notes, and and I, I think you're very active on LinkedIn. You've got twenty plus thousand fol- followers, which are growing all the time as well. So, but you better get in there if you want to link up with Alex before he hits his limit. But one thing I like to offer my guests is: is there anybody in your life who's helped you in your career or your personal life? It could be friends, family, anybody you'd like to give a shout out to.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I give a, a shout out to my first manager at Berkeley. His name's Adam Berman, um, and he's a super change maker, super entrepreneurial guy. And a couple of things I appreciate about him is that one, um, he hired me after just one interview. You know, so often we go through these like long, <laughs> drawn interviews, but after like a really good interview where we just like really saw eye to eye, he gave me a chance, and I so appreciate what he gave me a chance. And I think the second thing is he is just the entrepreneur of entrepreneurs. Um, and he really helped me cultivate my entrepreneurial mindset, the way of seeing you know, so many people see only challenges, and he really sees opportunities. And I think he's really changed my outlook and my mindset. And so I give him a lot of credit and a lot of gratitude for the way that he shaped me as a leader, an entrepreneur, and a changemaker.
0: No, I just love that. And I think those people who give you that break, because I'm sure there are loads of people out there. You know, the economy is maybe starting to go the other way, layoffs. Um, and you just need, you need to keep in the game. You need to keep buying a ticket. You need those at bats, all these horrible cliches. But actually, if you don't, if you're not out there the whole time, and even if you feel terrible, you've just got to be presenting the best face to the world. And then hopefully the, the magic will happen. Yeah, and as we talked
1: about, look, you'll fail along the way, you'll get setbacks, you'll get rejections. But the question is, can you keep going in spite of it? And I think that's what change makers do. And that's what I wish for you in your career journey as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. And yeah, good luck with the book. Love reading the book um, and hope it continues to uh, do very well and your course. So that. thank you so much, Alex. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. On. Love that conversation. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.